it's not called sex because I'm interested in talking about sex. It's called sex because nobody else had done it. And maybe that's the real premise of the whole thing. I just was, nobody else had called their magazine sex. All right. So Asher. Hi. Magazines are notoriously one of the most difficult mediums. Really? Yeah. Almost all magazines that are started fail. And a lot of them fail quite quickly. Sex Magazine, your magazine that you founded almost 10 years ago now. I want to learn a little bit more about how it started. I want to understand how a magazine like that, as independent and countercultural as Sex Magazine, how it can last that long. How did Sex Magazine start? What was the vision? I just couldn't get the interviews that I wanted to publish, get them published, honestly. I had been pitching interviews and uh, the interviews that I wanted to publish. Uh, Sex Magazine started actually with an interview with a guy named Danny McDonald, who's not very famous or anything like that. He was a member of Art Club 2000 and also ran a jewelry line called Mended Veil, which was loosely affiliated with a lot of underground art fashion movements from the early 2000s, like Bernadette Corp and Imitation of Christ. And I was a super obsessed with him and he also worked with a legendary gallerist named Colin DeLand and there was like not that much information about Colin DeLand out there. I did this interview with him where I got a lot of information that was like really really interesting and it told a lot of uh, there's a lot of history and there was a lot of personal history in it. I just thought it was like such a great interview and I was like pitching it around to different magazines and nobody wanted to publish it. I was absolutely confident that there was an audience for it and Despite the fact that like probably very few people watching this has any idea who Danny McDonald is, he is an amazing artist and you should check out his art. Like a lot of people that kind of struggle against like actually working with institutions on their own terms, I decided to start my own independent publication. And it was a weird time because it was 2012 and What was happening at the time was that print magazines were basically becoming, um, people weren't reading them and people weren't buying them. A lot of the readership just wasn't happening and the most interesting things were happening online. So 2012, it's like early Facebook and Tumblr and stuff like that. And that's where all this like really exciting energy was occurring. And so... I had this idea, which I still think is kind of crazy that it was like even considered to be an idea, um, to start an internet magazine, like a magazine that was released exclusively on the, on the internet quarterly that would actually like drop all at the same time, not like a blog or something like that. And it wasn't like a new piece every day or a new piece every week or something. It was just like, you drop the issue. It was a really fun project at the time because we were designing uh we were really trying to figure out that year how to have a print magazine experience on the internet uh which meant advertising and to have like cool ads and ads like for me good magazine means like an ad culture it's part of the fun Mm -hmm. of the publication itself and so uh we tried to translate that and uh actually ended up having this whole like amazing like rollover advertising system which was really cool it's so crazy to say this but at the time there really weren't that many online magazines like the main one that really kind of occupied the same space was dis they were doing an amazing job but me and the magazine occupied a 
different set of interests or a different kind of niche. Um, this was a lot more freeform where they would like launch a web page or a new URL and everyone was like pretty unique and different. Whereas sex magazine, we had this very kind of rigorous format that was like grounded in a certain aesthetic of design, which was very, very neutral. It was very flexible to its different kinds of content. I was really obsessed with, um, there was a magazine called index magazine, which was ran by a guy named Peter Halley, who was also a painter and ran this. Um, it's insane that he put it out monthly, but this was the early two thousands, which was a real kind of a Renaissance moment for print publications. Um, so there was index magazine and they were like putting, and there was butt magazine and there was vice, uh, but index, a lot of one word magazines. That was why the magazine was called sex was like the least number of uh, letters that I had that I could find. And why uh, do magazines like short one short word as the title mad magazine yeah, why magazine? Is that? Cause uh, I don't know, honestly, <laughs> I don't even know. Like, is it just convenient for like cover space? It's like saving cover real estate. I mean, the shorter, the better, because it's right, easier. Cause you, Naming a magazine is hard. In the early 2000s, like an, a modernist name like Index was like a kind of an interesting thing to do. And, um, but was awesome. That was such a, I mean, but still kicking is, is a really, really great magazine. Anyway, I kind of distracted you. We were talking about <laughs> the founding design aesthetic. Like what, what kinds of descriptors would you use? So honestly, our aesthetic didn't look that different from uh index magazine okay so that was uh, your kind of role model index and butt both had a really similar aesthetic and um I'm, index was uh, a little more a little less considered by comparison but was uh, the guys who do fantastic man and the gentlewoman they're like rock star genius graphic designers um i just wanted something that was extremely neutral Hmm. that could really be flexible for as many different kinds of content as possible so that no matter what the aesthetic that we were putting into the frame, it was all going to look good. And I think to a certain degree, we accomplished that for a, for a couple of years. Because what happened was, one thing I didn't know was that with websites, especially around between 2012 and 2015 or whatever, was that you basically had to redesign them every year. And that was not something that I had the time or budget or why just for. to keep up with the fashions or why? So there's a lot of transitions going on, right? Because 2012, not everything was on the phone yet, right? Like mm. you had people that were projecting that people were going to be reading on their phone, but mm. you didn't actually know for sure, like that people were all going to be reading everything on their fucking phone. So. As things migrated more to the phone space, the online magazine became less and less functional because we didn't update our website and other publications like Vice, like ID, like Days, who were print previously, all of a sudden just started putting all their energy into online spaces. And it was just totally impossible to hold any kind of like competitive edge or it's not even competitive edge. It's just like 
uniqueness in that space. You just kind of felt like it was saturated and overrun with too much content. Saturated online. is such a good word. And you, right? cause you started as purely digital sex. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Pure digital. And so then there's this, this rush of other digital content, other magazines going fully online. And how did you process that? I had started it in a space where I didn't feel like there was any competition. So there was a lot of like room to move around and feel good there. As there were more people in that space, it became, it just honestly felt less fun because like a lot of the pleasure of being able to do something original or unique is to be there first or to be there early or to get something that other people are not doing. And when you're kind of covering the exact same person that purple or vice or whatever just has covered it you i mean all you're doing is kind of what you what it starts to feel like you're doing is you're like you're participating in like a press cycle right was your ambition to build something that would scale really big and be like a mega brand or was your ambition to do something like purposely niche and super fun weird fun for you but you never really cared about making it big what was your attitude both both. You, I mean, I wrote a business plan, but I didn't finish it, you know? So you've kind of always been conflicted between the draw to be big and the, the fun of being small? Yeah. That's you've never the, really like had it been decided on, on which one? Yeah, I can never really decide which one is the priority. Um, although I feel like it's slowly but gradually starting to cement itself into a way where you can be small and... Um, niche and also have a scale to it is that what you're feeling now is that what you're seeing yeah yeah i mean that's that's what all the like that's absolutely what's going on right now. is sex magazine having like an inflection point right now in growth or scale or what are you seeing i mean we're almost sold out of the latest issue and we printed we we, we sold three times as many issues as we did the last issue and we're almost sold out in the same period of time. Have you seen steady growth over the whole trajectory or has it been up and down cyclically? <laughs> Since the magazine relaunched in print, it has been steady growth. Also, the magazine relaunched in print during COVID. But I think that what's been happening, especially with the last two issues, has been uh, the covers being Anna Kachian and then Drain Gang has been an interesting creative bet that putting somebody like Anna Kachian on the cover will have an audience shot by Richard Kern, who did an amazing job. So Sex Magazine is really having a moment then right now. It, sounds I, like. it feels like it. Yeah. It feels like it, but it's also like September and we just launched the issue like two weeks ago and We'll see how I feel in like three in three months, you know? Well, I mean, just as you described it before, I also pride myself on finding things early and, you know, catching things. You do. Are, yeah. You I, I literally do. I, you get there really early. Well, thank you. Thank you. You mentioned Dr Drain Gang. I'm not hip at all. Explain to me why Drain Gang is cool. It was suggested to me by some people, a numerous people whose opinion I respected and appreciated. And um, I was lucky enough to listen to have listened to them i'll admit it i wasn't a fan i see i was not a drain gang fan i was not paying attention to them i was not listening to them i like just listened to brian jonestown massacre all day <laughs> it wasn't like what i was looking for it wasn't like what i was like super interested in and thank god i didn't let let that get in the way of 
being, you know, curious about it or listening to other people's suggestions. Like when people say you should work with this person or you should look at this person or you should pay attention, you know, this is what you're supposed to do. Shout out Sam from um, Nymphet Alumni. But shout out Sam for really suggesting that directly to me. But I don't always know. Sometimes I have an intuition for this stuff and sometimes it's great. And then sometimes I totally fall short <laughs> and it sucks. It sucks just not knowing that you can 100% trust your gut on this. Like my gut has been wrong. Do you, you know? ever struggle with getting older and trying to stay hip and youthful and having your ear to the ground? How old just do you curious. Think I am? I'm asking for a friend. Yeah. How old do you think I am? Oh, I would never guess. Yeah. But uh, yeah, obviously you're, you're not, a, you're not a 19 year old, right? No. And obviously we know that often the engine of new fresh culture tends to be younger. How do you think about staying relevant, staying fresh, staying relevant, stay keeping your taste and your judgment alive as you age? Clearly you've done a great job. My feeling is that people that are older have a lot to offer. Mm. I mean, if we're just even talking about the conference tonight and like, just like there's been a lot of great speakers and stuff but like for me walter kern just crushed it you know um and he's probably the most senior speaker mm. at the conference so far good point shout out walter you're awesome i feel like it's an interesting situation to be in i've joked that i feel like i'm seeing like the third trucker hat revival of my lifetime or maybe that was last year like you with age, you're actually able to see the waves of trends occur mm. and you're actually able to recognize what it looks like. It's also possible to see it and understand it without totally investing your entire self in it, um, which I think is a, a benefit of age. Um, I think it's challenging to work with young people. Honestly, I think that it's like takes that it's hard for young people to work with anybody in a, in a lot of circumstances. Mm -hmm. They're like, you know, like I was remembering this instance when I was in my early twenties and I was working for some, or I was helping out some independent magazine called the Kingsborough press, um, who were great. And, uh, they had this, they wanted, I convinced them funnily enough that they needed advertisements in their magazine and they should put ads in their mag. And so what they ended up doing was they printed them really, really dark to the point that they were just like <laughs> impossible to read. And I remember being like in my early twenties and freaking out. Like I just could not, it was like, it was such a physical reaction to this, like ultimately like a human error, mm -hmm. you know? Okay. And like, I'm absolutely positive that I burned a bridge with at least one person from that. And like, it's interesting sometimes working with younger people to be on the receiving end of that kind of like, just, uh, immaturity with the, yeah. said in the, le with, with the least amount of like pejorative sense. No, it's it makes just, sense. I'm not saying also that I'm like a model for discipline no i, I you know I, i'm sure. not saying that i'm like really crushing it right yeah, now yeah. in the discipline department but it's but something you gain with age uh, in, in a way i think that like older people have like a ton to offer and like also for me i can actually like be able to look at 
you know, certain artists work or like people that I work with and recognize how many different precedents there is. And what I also think that that allows me to do is be able to recognize occasionally when something is actually new, you know, right. and that like when something is unprecedented because you've just seen so many, like the, the amnesia right now, especially is crazy mm. that certain people believe that I'm, I'm struggling to find the right the best reference or example for this, but when people believe that something has never been done before and it's just this like willful ignorance on their part that is at this point being encouraged. When I was in art school, I came of age in the like Karagarga run, run, rummaging through the stacks. Mm. I just turned 40, but when I was in my early 20s, what was happening was the entire archive was being uploaded to the internet. Mm. Everything was there. So not the mainstream stuff, the normal shit. Yeah. You can totally get that off of like LimeWire or whatever, but then you had like the other shit, like you had mutant sounds and stuff like that, which was this like incredible archive of everything. Right. And like, we're talking like the hardest, the most obscure. And that was how you literally related to people or to other artists was just this like knowledge. Like I've talked to like Mike Blandick, uh, the filmmaker about this. This was what we were talking about was your deep cuts that you, that you had been able to get a hold of and stuff. And so I spent like the majority of my early twenties, just like downloading. Right. Um, and it was such an incredible period of time because like you're educating yourself. Um, in this way. So you've done some epic interviews. Tell us about the time you interviewed William Gibson and what did you learn from him? I was 25 and I was obsessed with William Gibson. A lot of my friends were as well. And then, um, I don't even know if you remember lonely girl 15. I don't recall. So lonely girl 15 was this vlog in like really early YouTube days okay. of this, um, girl that was like, kind of like, hi guys. And she was like, but there was something like really off about it, like a video diary or something. Okay. And it turned out it was scripted. It was like a TV show with a narrative. And it was like a, some kind of vampire story or something oh, wow. like that. It was an unprecedented moment of somebody saying that, that people wondering whether or not the narrative was true or not. And for some reason, I drew a conclusion that this was really similar to what William Gibson wrote about in pattern recognition about as the footage, okay. right? And so I somehow managed to figure out like through some Googling how to get in touch with a literary agent manager and wrote them an email and said, I would like to interview William Gibson about whether or not he thinks that there's a connection between lonely girl 15 and the footage, which is some pattern recognition. Cause he had, he didn't have a new book or anything. Oh, wow, okay. He was, it was like yeah. completely outside of press cycle. Okay. So I'm sure this person was like, Oh, I guess like <laughs> we're going to, uh, nobody else is writing. Like, nothing else yeah, yeah. Like sure. Well, you know and he met me for coffee and where? Um, just in Vancouver, where I was. I'm from Vancouver. Um, and I was and he, like, he's based there? Or he's what? based okay. there, yeah. Okay. Like William Gibson, Gabor Mate, Douglas Copeland, Eckhart Tolle, and Naomi Klein. Rad. And um, so you met him in a coffee shop or something? And yeah, I think I recorded it on a tape and edited it and we published it and online that was like literally my first interview that i ever did and he was so nice and he gave me so many great like tidbits so you have to tell us what was his answer to your question 
oh, he was just like, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, no, you had no way. He was like, I don't. He wasn't following that yeah, news and story. Then we, and then we just talked about the internet. <laughs> and that was what year, roughly? That would have been like 2007. Okay. Um, and did he have prescient views about the internet at that time? Oh, yeah. I mean, like, yeah, you mean he's the, you know, he invented the term cyberspace. No, of course. And I respect that, of course. But you're also saying that he was kind of out of the loop on actual contemporary internet culture at that moment. William Gibson is so weird because he, like, I mean, I think he would hate, I think he's just not a completist. He's never the person that, like, has to know everything in order to write about it. I mean, he's talked about this a lot in, in, I think, in other interviews as well, that, like, knowing a ton about the internet um wasn't really like that great to write about that it was more about the imagination of it my favorite quote from the interview that i did with him was that he didn't want to be on the internet until a dog could use it um which is an interesting thing for a guy that writes about tech and science fiction that he was you know actually did not want to fuck with it at all pardon my language sure but Doey, you're Catholic. Does that offend you if I say fuck? No. I'll try not to swear anyways. I think no. it's better. Yeah. But um, yeah, it was just a great interview. And um, it was it blew my mind that through a handful of like things, I could actually get in contact and have a conversation with somebody that I admired and appreciated. Yeah. And then that that would result in a thing that was, you know, an interview that other people would read. That was pretty cool. Is there a key to securing good interview guests? What What are the tricks to to getting them to say yes? Oh, you. There is no. I mean, it's really challenging working with publicists. The more people involved, the harder it is. I'm sure you know this from your own experience. Honestly, the people I tend to hit up don't have publicists. They don't <laughs> yet. They They don't yet. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah. They get publicists. Um. Publicists are really, really challenging to work with and also sometimes necessary. Right. Um, so, I mean, I had to work with a publicist on uh, 100 Gex and Drain Gang. So what's the key to working with publicists? What What do people need to know to navigate that? Um, I just know what works for me. Which is what? Which is, I just say, like, I'm really willing to work with you on this. Hmm. So being flexible and sig very, signaling very your flexible. ability to, yeah. I'm very artist friendly. I really want to make this work. I want this to be a positive experience. And uh, I put a lot of effort into making that happen and being adaptable to, I mean, one thing about when you work on a counterculture magazine is that you're dealing with a lot of people that are living in a lot of different kinds of realities. Like this is not just like the writers, like the writer's room where everybody's kind of on the same page and you're dealing with your subjects, but you're like, if you're in a collaborative state with your subjects, um, what you're doing is like, you are entering like their bandwidth, their reality. And you've re and if you want to make it work, which I do, um, because I really, my, my biggest goal with every interview is I want them to sign off on. I want them to feel like this is something that they stand by. I know that's a lot different from a lot of what happens in journalism, but I also think there's enough journalism that being able to have something that feels like a collaboration that the subject signs off on is a special artifact in its own right, you know? And so 
what more can you say about the art of actually conducting the, the interview when it comes down to the the details of what questions to ask, what questions not to ask, how to ask them? So this is funny. I, I don't know if you've heard this, but like there's a uh, Errol Morris. Sure. Um, he I don't know where I read this, but he admitted that while he's conducting his interviews, what he's really thinking about, he's not actually listening. He's thinking about his next question. Mm. Right. And it's a really challenging thing because dead air is uncomfortable. It's awkward. Um, it takes you out of the moment. Um, so unfortunately, but at the same time, what ends up happening is you don't get as much pill pull, you don't get as much back and forth, right? So that's something that I struggle with. I don't know. Like I, I like at this point in time, like I can go and I I can I'll, I can spend twenty minutes, half an hour, writing down my questions, forget about them entirely, <laughs> yeah. and do an hour and a half or two hour interview. And like, also, I have a one other thing that I like to do, which I really try to focus on narrative and chronology. So I really like to get as much of people's life story as possible. Like, I almost always start every interview with like tell me about your childhood where are you from yeah. what it was what was it like you know which apparently you're supposed to do to get to confirm when you're doing like a interrogation or something that somebody's <laughs> telling the truth uh, okay but for me it's also this thing where you're getting some kind of context the more specific you can get about a person's context so for example if i was interviewing you right what i want to know is like all the things that happened like a therapy session, but in your childhood and stuff. But I want to know all the things that happened to you in your childhood and your background that lead to the logical making sense moment where what you do was, there was no other way. Mm. There was no other choice. Wow. Right? That's great. And the reason I, I want to do that partially is because a part of me is jealous of you and a part of me wants to be you. Mm. And the more I can find out about who you actually are, like the specifics of that, the more I'm not going to want to be you because I'm going to know how fucking impossible it is. Every single person comes with a really, really, really specific set of background and experiences and con. And this is artists in particular, and especially interesting artists like yourself have a really specific set of background, right? And when you learn that stuff, all of a sudden, all the like ego shit kind of, for me at least, it kind of fades a little bit. And what I start to be able to do is relate on a different like level that I feel is actually useful. It's crazy when you're watching somebody do an interview and they just are like, tell me about the latest thing. And you're just <laughs> like, who are you even talking to? I want to switch gears though a little bit and talk about sex. I'm guessing you know a thing or two about it. The name was given to me by an artist named bill hayden bill's amazing he's collaborated with like artists like um sam pulitzer and uh, he used to show at real fine arts and we did a small publishing house together for a minute called 100 percent. i also just need to admit i was like hi <laughs> when i came up with the name but yeah he no i didn't come up with the name he was like we were hanging out and he was like you should call your magazine sex somebody that i really looked up to at the time this guy named brendan fowler 
who conducts amazing interviews and was also the editor of a magazine. Brendan Fowler had a magazine called Sex Sells Magazines, very like kind of emblematic of what the kind of thing you could do in the early 2000s and like you do it like a cool zine featuring Barry McGee. And then there was also Fuck You Press, which was the Fugs, right? Um, so I loved the Fugs and uh, I loved Fuck You Magazine. Um, I thought it was so cool. So when my friend suggested to me, you should call your magazine sex, I was like three letters. Okay, that's a pretty good idea. And then when my designer, Nathan Antlick, and I found the typeface for the logo, it was it. Like it, just was, it was just done because the logo, in my opinion, um, really gives a different kind of uh, idea of what the magazine's energy is. It's really, really accessible and neutral and not macho, but it's not gay or straight. It's not masculine or feminine. It's really just kind of like neutral. But sex is not neutral, right? Sex is hot, steamy. Um, it's 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 highly engaged, right? It's, it's not funny. neutral. I actually, sex is not one neutral, of my, one of my, right? One of, I, when I interviewed Betsy Brown and Peter Vack recently, they talked about the sex scenes in their movies. And they described them as being very utilitarian. They were they, they were very important to serving the story, which I really like. Thought was interesting. And when I interviewed Abel Ferrara about um, all the sex scenes in his movies, he just completely skirted it as well, which is probably what I'm going to try to do. Because everyone's as well. uncomfortable talking about sex. Well, it's not called sex because I'm interested in talking about sex. It's called sex because nobody else had done it, and maybe that's the real premise of the whole thing. I just was, I, nobody else had called their magazine sex. I wanted to call right, it. Right. It's like sex. unconquered verbal territory. It's just like a little verbal flag in the ground that you're going to, you're going to take. Which is the, what the magazine's about is unconquered territory. If I can find it, or if you're not first, at least do it in a different way. Hmm. I've always had major gripes about the name of the magazine. I'm going to be like, able to say like, just because of my conversation with Justin Murphy, I'm now like at peace. You know, like everything is like so much better. I mean, I'm glad that it's not just called something like exceptionally neutral, <laughs> like purple, man, they crushed it with that name. That is a good name for a magazine. Purple purple is like, well, they, but, but is a very interesting name but for a magazine. It was an amazing name for a magazine. I mean, they could acquire your magazine and then merge it, call but, it butt like, sex, and it would be a totally different genre. We're thinking about doing um, an SFW zine sometime in the future. When I hear the word sex, I feel like it's saying sexy, like counterculture is sexy, right? Sex magazine has been described as the New Yorker of counterculture. And just like the New, the New Yorker has a kind of higher class, prestige, New York City sex appeal. Sex magazine has the countercultural street gritty sex appeal. Yes or no? No. Okay, fair enough. It's your magazine. <laughs> not for me at least it's really like it's really just it, a word it's, it's really just a word it's really just like a dumb tattoo i got fair enough you know on my knee that is never going away by the way that was a very interesting idea in 2011 <laughs> like doing that was a really great would was that was fun that seemed like a cool thing and then like things got so literal i see Things got so literal and like there was so little nuance and it got really, really boring and annoying. Your podcast is called Other Life, which is an extremely neutral, unoffensive, non-attention grabbing name, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And at the same time, your content 
is extremely provocative. Not extremely, but quite provocative. So what you've managed to do is infuse the phrase other life right. with a lot more kind of like meaning and provocation and interest and stuff like that. So you mentioned navigating a bunch of really big changes, such as the shift into more literal culture. But another one is changes in the distribution and publishing landscape, right? And so you told an interesting anecdote earlier about how when you started, Sex Magazine was online only. And then only after you started, did online magazines become really popular? There was a rush of digital magazine content online. You decide to do a print edition and you've been doing print for for how long? How did that come about? Like, what was the logic? What made you decide to do print? Why do a print magazine in a world where, you know, digital is, is, is free to produce, right? Uh, for zero marginal cost. Why do a print magazine? I mean, 2019 was like kind of an ugly year on Twitter. It was not a fun year. Like, I think that what happened was that I had taken a hiatus from the magazine and what I was watching online was just this like thing where X posts the thing and then there's a zillion screenshots and everybody's taking issue with it and the whole thing is just getting gutted and people are getting canceled. And I was just like, I don't want to participate in this. Um, and if I do participate in this, I at least want some kind of financial compensation for it. You know, like, so if somebody decides they want to like, get upset about something in the magazine, go on Twitter and be like, this is how much this magazine sucks. They at least have to buy the issue. They have <laughs> to read the article probably, which means they also have to like, not do like a word search. They actually have to read the article to find the thing that they hate. And then they like can take a photograph of it. And there's a few more steps and like, we're not that active on Twitter, but I just was tired of, I, I don't know if I was scared or I just didn't want to participate in whatever that thing was because it sucks. And at the same time, probably a similar kind of moment where, um, digital space is oversaturated. Print space is really not oversaturated. I think it was, was about a year after Richard Turley's civilization magazine had come out it was probably about a year before the drunken canal came out. Basically, you're projects. just repulsed by the social media culture. And like also like reading shit on your phone sucks. It right. sucks. I'd gotten sober and what happened, one of the things that changed, a lot of things change when you get, when you stop drinking. But for me, one of the things that I stopped doing was I stopped watching movies at home and I started going to the movie theater a ton. I loved it. And it was something that I had just really stopped doing. Going to the movies was this really weird it was a very tactile experience if you're in it and you're with other people with print, it's the same kind of thing. Like I can't, you know, like having these ads, having these things, like we'd made a book anthologizing the first 10 years of the magazine. The book was awesome. We didn't have any ads. I had done the template. I wanted to reboot the magazine. I was really like, I, the same thing had happened as with Danny McDonald. I'd interviewed Paul Schrader. Nobody wanted to publish my interview with Paul Schrader. And so I was like, I guess I have to do this. And then like, it just kind of like snowballed or whatever, but it's very, very, very satisfying. And I think that it's a very special gift. It's a special experience for somebody to receive something in the mail 
mailed by hand with a little thank you note and a few stickers. Shout out to Aya Alvarez, who's doing our fulfillment in Vancouver. Aya, you rock. You're amazing. <laughs> Shout out Haley and Salem and Skylar, too, who are doing a lot of all the, who are shipping out like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of zines. And you just decided that the benefit of that, the satisfaction of that was what the world needed. I didn't want to redesign my website, man. <laughs> and I don't like, and there was no way I'd tried redesigning it for the phone and it looked like shit mm. it's not fun it's like there is no way you can convey the print magazine experience do you feel that switching to print was a major factor in the recent growth of, of sex magazine circulation yeah i mean i think that also what's happening is the people that we're putting are just the people that are not getting physical media they don't get that treatment right there's so kind of like, like a whole like, batch of people like, who, who like have never even had physical media. Yeah, right. Like, have, at this you, point. have you had any physical? Uh, have you ever been like written about or covered in print? It's oh. a good question. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that there was that there has been. At a certain point in time, maybe 15 years ago, maybe 20 years ago, you would absolutely have been in print. And it's not just um, because of the ubiquity of the internet and all that stuff. It's also because of where the culture is at. Maybe you got shouted out in the Vanity Fair piece. I forget. The honest truth is I don't pay too much attention to the, all that like chatter. Well, I mean, okay. But anyways. Was that were, in print? My mom had a copy of that and I was like, I, I had to point her to it. I thought you were, what you were going to say is that a lot of people today, especially younger people, don't actually have the experience yet of receiving cool shit in the mail. That's a thing. On the other side, with the magazine, it's like, holy shit. The irony of this whole, like, Urbit, con the fact that we're having this conversation at the Urbit conference um, is the fact that we're talking about something like Urbit's obsession with permanence, right? Like, it's like final, it's over, it's done. And wanting to kind of go back to more basic methods of computing, right? Like, books are the oldest, print is the oldest technology. It is literally a technology that you can use, like you can take it to the moon and it is going to work. You don't need electricity. It functions. It is really satisfying to be able to know that the print object is the final thing. It's so much easier. It's so much fun, more fun laying it out. It's so nice working. Like it's so nice just giving it to somebody. I think what you were saying before when you were asking, like if I've ever been in print or whatever is you were making an interesting point, which is people respond differently to being in print. And so in a way, doing a print magazine is uniquely cool because you get to put people that you like into print. You get to elevate what you think is worthy and they respond to it more more excitedly, more favorably. So, like, how old are you? 36. Oh, shit. Okay. Cool. I'm up there, man, with you, dude. Yeah, okay. I'm a cusper of Gen X millennial. What I witnessed in, like, as being a baby Gen Xer is, like, as a teenager, the music, the CD, like I, the movies, everything fucking ruled. Like ages 13 to 18, everything was so awesome. I'm not going to just say like, oh yeah, you were young. Everybody thinks it was awesome and stuff like that. <laughs> no, it was awesome. Like the, the movies that were coming out between the age of 13 and 18 for me were bonkers good. All the whole like Tarantino stuff and ending with like Spike Jones and Sofia Coppola. It was awesome. And magazines, it like everything was just getting better. Like we're again starting with like 
Spin Magazine and like even like Rolling Stone in the 90s was really good. And then like once again, we're ending with like button purple and index and stuff like that. Like it's this really great kind of trajectory that I've mm-hmm. experienced. Um, and then it just slowly but surely just disappears. Hmm. And it's just not there. That experience is not there. And it sucks. And a lot of the young people today don't even have a memory of it. They, they never know even experienced they don't it. Know th- maybe they know what they're missing. But um, so this has motivated a lot of stuff that I do. Like I produced a documentary called Maggie Lee's Mommy, and like, which is a feature length documentary made by a 25 year old, um, just completely like tarnation for millennials. It's such a crazy movie. And I really wanted to give young, and it was literally being made because there hadn't been a tarnation for millennials, right? Like there, if, if there was a really like super back to basics, industrial strength, cultural magazine that was always just kind of trying to find, like be on top of stuff, I would probably not feel the need to do this, but I don't think there is. Okay, so you gave this awesome, impassioned kind of recollection of everything you loved growing up as a teenager. Yeah. For young people today who don't even have memories of any of that, what what are they missing? Like for people who are young people who are kind of just over-indexed on digital content, how would you describe it? How would you communicate it to the young person who's internet poisoned? They're just having a completely different experience. I mean, the question I'd ask them is like, what am I missing? Like, what are you guys experiencing that I have just no idea about? I just think it's nice to try to share with people who don't even know what you're talking about firsthand. I don't know. I know that I listen to the NIMFED alumni podcast and fight the compulsion to text like Sam being like, that's not right. <laughs> not so much that's not right, but more along the lines of there's more. There's right. so much more to what you're talking about. There's so much more context. You know, like United Colors of Benetton, Oliviero Toscani, Colors Magazine, Sisley, Terry Richardson, like that whole thing, that whole cultural moment, you know, would they know about that stuff? And I'm sure that there's absolutely got to be things that younger people are experiencing and know about that I have no idea. They can make their podcast and they could teach us about that later. I want to leave a little time capsule. For people, because there is this interesting thing, isn't there, Asher, where it's music like... Music videos. Make better music videos. <laughs> How about that? Let's just start with this. Make okay. better music videos. What's the best music video from the past? I'll say, like, a shout out to a good music video recently was Black Dress's Cartoon Network. I've seen also, I think John Raffman's new music video for ASAP Rocky is going to be really good. It's the Spike Jones rule. Light a guy on fire and make the shot last three minutes and a half. <laughs> That's how you make a music video. It's not that complicated. Let me ask you this, Asher. Yeah. What is cool to you? What is cool? I think, feel like I've been changing my mind lately about this a little bit. I think where I started off from was a place where I was just like, you just say the right thing and you do the right thing and you look good and you think good and everything and you do everything right. Okay. I really think that's where I started. You just do it right. Hmm. You just get it right. It's just this kind of, you know uh, what the right things to say is right in the right place. You wear the right clothes, whatever. And there's a possibility that 
that might have actually been the truth. I don't know. I, there, there's a possibility that that was the right, that was the truth back in the day. My experience has been recently that I think what is cool is people um, uh, having humility, which means to me being um, honest about who they are and accepting of who they are. I think people being willing to make mistakes and be open and public and vulnerable. I think that shit's cool. Honestly, I would say that I'm like seeing it rewarded a lot lately, that kind of action and behavior. I hate to get all like Brene Brown and shit, but like a lot of it has to do with vulnerability and being comfortable and at peace with yourself, which is probably why a lot of points in my life I haven't been that cool. The people that are really, really, really like crushing it and just doing, I mean, First of all, I think being an artist is pretty cool. I think making stuff is pretty cool. I think like being creative and expressing yourself is pretty hot. But past that point, it's just the people that are really like really really willing to like just be themselves with a lot of curiosity. I don't I liked your first venture in saying that there's something about just knowing the right thing to say at the right time in the right place. And yet also when we find someone or something really cool, they also seem to have this quality of being innocently naive of what's right or wrong. Isn't that also cool? And isn't that kind of paradoxical? For me, when I started getting really into drugs and stuff like that, um, I found that it really helped me to relax in a way that I wasn't able to previously. Drugs. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I felt that one, and I, my experience was that when I relaxed at, for that period of time, when things were going really well or were going better, um, I think that, uh, I was pretty cool, but, um, because I was just, yeah, I was really comfortable being myself. The stuff that excites me, the things that I think are interesting, um, a lot of the time it has to do with something being new, done with conviction, done with like a real 360 degree vision conviction. But there's, you know, it's just like, it's not repeatable. What the, the things that these people that I admire do, like we're at this conference and like people like Petra Courtright are here and like, you know, like, like good luck imitating that. You know, I got to talk with her very briefly, but I don't know her work terribly well. Yeah. Tell me why Petra Courtright is cool. She was talking today just about how thoroughly she indexes her practice. And she's probably been quoted a lot saying this lately, just how she's like archived every single brushstroke she's ever made. She was talking about how she has a lot of hobbies and it sounds like gardening is one of them that action of treating your creative practice as something that you nurture over a long period of time that you tend to tending to your practice. Doesn't that sound fucking great? And at the same time, she's the, one of the most iconic painters of for post-internet art. I think she's one of the most I iconic. Her, her selfie videos are absolutely bonkers. Are there particular observable traits where you see something in the culture and you're just like that is gonna 
take off. That's going to be hot. So this Ryan Carton was happening around the same time as like Paper Rad, Paper Rodeo, Fort Thunder, that kind of stuff. And uh, Joe Grillo, who is affiliated with Paper Rodeo, um, he was in Providence a lot. And um, Ryan McGinley of Vice fame came to the school I went to and did an exhibition. And he brought his whole crew. Dan Cullen was already a student there, but he brought his whole crew. And uh, Leo Fitzpatrick from the movie Kids was in the audience. I was sorry, but not he, in the audience. He went to the art show. It was an art show of photo prints. Sure. Very, very cool photo prints. A lot of trucker hats and flannel. Okay. And I remember like Joe Grillo, who was this like kind of like more freaky Providence noise music painter weirdo and was like really a part of like that was where that and where I was putting my allegiance, you know, to. I remember he like saw Leo Fitzpatrick who had started the movie Kids and stuff like that. Um and he just saw Leo and was like he he was like, you have AIDS. It was a dumb joke about the movie Kids, everything like that. But I do remember that there was a lot of like actual like outward hostility directed towards this thing, which was like really officially cool, by the way. Mm. You know, like Vice magazine, tattoos, fitted jeans, you know, like very, very cool. Um and yeah, we thought it was corny. And we always knew it was corny. And to me, it will always be corny. Vice magazine. Yes. Like I cannot, from beginning to end. I no even matter, early no days, matter, no it matter, wasn't even cool in the early not, days. No matter how much I like it, it's just I'm always going to be parsing it out. Even in the early days, I mean, I wasn't really there have, for like, it. I, in the I super... have a lot of re- like it gets to the thing where it's like I have respect for like somebody like Jesse Pearson. I have a lot of respect for Jesse Pearson. At the same time, I don't always think that his like I don't think that his curation is particularly like deeply inspired, you know, okay. um, or what he was doing at the time was very specifically i mean i have like jesse Spe- jesse pearson if you're watching this which i doubt you are like <laughs> i have infinite respect for you as a magazine editor i think you're very 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 smart very intelligent um but the curation wasn't for me sure okay. um it wasn't what i was looking for it wasn't what i was interested in it wasn't it wasn't my magazine vice you know sure uh index was my magazine gotcha uh but and I think that if there's one thing that is a part of me is a little bit of that re- rebellion, re- rejection of whatever like that vice energy is, because I just never wanted it. You and know? what is it? How would you summarize that that vice energy that you dislike? I know that like Jordan Wolfson was not on the side of Vice magazine. But there was just some kind of like okay. divide in my head sure. that just said like, there's this stuff that's really, really, really weird and complicated and a little freaky that i'm that i fuck with mm-hmm. and then there's this other stuff that is a, like a little bit more like accessible a little to but to me it was actually kind of like a little boring or a little trite or something like that i have because of that overlooked some really great works of art hmm. i have like neglected and not respected certain things because i affiliated it with vice and i've been wrong so like what, what did you underestimate? I don't even want to say it. Cause okay. like, 
I'm, I feel like everybody's going to like hear this and be like, I can't even believe I listened to this fucking no, it's guy good. talk. Be vulnerable. Explain, uh, let's say it, but then explain why, what you overlooked. Nathan Fielder, because Vice, I think, saw like how good it was and just like some, they just jumped on it. They just like really went for that kind of a thing. And maybe they didn't. And maybe I just assumed they did. But whatever was going on with Nathan Fielder, I just was like not interested and I am wrong. Um, and you think that was just because you were somewhat biased against vice and reactionary. That's the warning then is, is don't reject something just because you have some associated antipathy. Exactly. Uh, well, <laughs> if someone asked me what I think is cool, one answer I might give is I think doing shit is cool. And I think doing shit for a really long time is cool and just sticking with it for a really long time. I always find that really, really cool. And I admire that a lot. And it's one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the podcast. So this is the final thing I want to ask you about is what is the trick to persevering? What is the trick to endurance, especially when it comes to difficult niche countercultural content? Can you share anything about how you think about that tricks you've, you've developed mental frameworks or anything at all you could say to that? I want to just take this moment to shout out my co-editor, Zach Sokol, who without, without him, this issue wouldn't have happened. Um, and a lot of la the, the issue before that as well. I don't know. I really don't know the answer to that. Like I've tried many times to destroy this magazine. I've tried many times to end it. I've tried many times to get out of it, to really? try to find some kind of other way of like occupying my time and energy and what has happened over and over again is that nothing else seems to work i've tried to be like look i this self-curating thing or it's self-publishing can can be really can feel really lame sometimes and uh sometimes you really think that you're missing out on some kind of like professional experience or something that like there's something to be learned, right? Like you should be getting a book deal with a fancy publisher or something, I mean, or just working in an office and seeing how people copy edit, right? You know, that kind of sure. thing. And so I've tried to get myself into those offices and I'm too old to be an intern. Like they literally are just like, you're too old to be an intern, but I've tried and, uh, it didn't really work. Um, so a lot of the times it's been me just like, and returning to this thing. Hmm. Justin, I'm just so grateful that you invited me on your podcast. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing your wisdom and the lessons you've learned. All Asher right. Penn, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Justin.